Amen. Well, friends, um, I've begun a, a short series of messages on the subject of prayer. And prayer is, of course, a, a vast subject. And anyone who undertakes to bring any messages on prayer would, would have to be very selective in what is said. And so I am being very selective in these messages on prayer. The first message we looked at, I called the foundation of prayer, the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you will remember the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Esther was a Jewish believing woman who was part of the harem of a pagan king. And at one point, she needed to come before the king and make a request to preserve her people, the Hebrew people, from annihilation. And that was a risky thing, to come before a pagan king, because they were, they were fickle, they were um, capricious, they were cruel, they were ruthless, they had little regard for human life. And if that king extended to her or anyone who came before him the golden scepter, it meant that that person had found favor in his eyes. But no golden scepter, it could be death for Esther. So Esther dared to come before the king. In that case, the king showed her favor, extended the golden scepter, and the people of Hebrews, of the Hebrews were providentially spared. Well, God is a God said to be in the Bible a consuming fire a consuming fire of holiness and holy anger toward everything and anything that is contrary to his holy nature. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the good news is that in Jesus Christ, we may come boldly into the presence of this God and approach his throne, not fearfully, not hesitatingly, not uncertainly, but boldly. Why? Because Jesus, as the hymn says, Jesus, our great high priest, offered his blood and died. And he has taken that blood, which was the only blood that truly effectively took away sin, and he has taken that to the mercy seat in heaven, as it were, sprinkled it there, and that blood perpetually pleads for us so that we cannot perish. It's because Jesus became our, our high priest and offered his blood in our place that God's throne of wrath has been turned into a throne of grace, a throne that delights in us to come, welcomes us to come. But then last week, we turned from considering the work of Christ as our great high priest to the person of Christ. And we saw that when it comes to prayer, Jesus Christ is our supreme example He's our example in everything that can be imitated by the creature, but he's also our example when it comes to praying. His disciples were obviously captivated by the way Jesus prayed because at one point they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. One preacher notes that they never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to preach, teach us to heal, teach us to cast out demons, but they did say, Lord, teach us to pray. So exemplary, so captivating was his prayer life to his disciples. And we looked last week at the prayer life of Jesus as our example. When did Jesus pray? Where, how, what, and to whom? When did he pray? He prayed in the early morning. He prayed throughout the day. He prayed in the evening. At one time, at least, he prayed through the night. He prayed at times of great expenditure of energy when he poured out himself, healing people and casting out demons late into the night, early in the morning, he got up to replenish his, 
energy and strength in the presence of God. He prayed when God's plan and priorities for him were challenged and they wanted to make him an earthly king and circumvent the cross. He prayed when temptations presented themselves such as such as um, as that he prayed. Yes, when his priorities were threatened in terms of, hey, come back, Jesus, you need to heal more people. No, I need to go out to other villages. That's why I, I, I came. And he prayed when trouble came, when he learned of the death of John the Baptist and he knew that his death was imminent. He went alone to be with his father. Where did he pray? He prayed alone. He prayed in secret. He prayed on a mountain. He prayed in the wilderness. How did he pray? He prayed with repetition. He prayed with submission to his father's will. He prayed with passion. And Hebrews said he prayed with godly fear or reverence. We saw some of the things for which he prayed. And then finally, we saw to whom he prayed. Consistently, Jesus prayed to his father. And I noted that father is the new covenant name for God. And you ought to often at least, not maybe exclusively, but often you ought to come to God as father. And I said, and I say briefly again, that if the word father is something that makes you stutter and you can't get it out, and you can't call God father, it may be because you have a deficient view of the fatherhood of God. And you don't adequately understand how God the father views you in Jesus Christ as fully forgiven and beloved, one he delights to have come to him. Can you call God Father? I hope that you can with understanding. But today we're going to consider the vital importance of prayer. Why is prayer such an indispensable priority for the individual Christian and for the Christian church? And let me start with some statements made by some men of old. E.M. Bounds in his book, Power Through Prayer. He says, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Augustine said, he that loves little, prays little. He that loves much, prays much. Bunyan was bold to say, if you are not a praying person, you are not a Christian. Richard Baxter, prayer is the breath of the new creature. And George Herbert, prayer is the soul's blood. Why is prayer vitally important to us as Christians and to us as a church? First, of five reasons this morning, prayer as communion with God is the goal of the gospel. Prayer is the very goal of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that sinners such as we all are by nature and from birth who are separated from God because of our sin. The gospel is the good news that we sinners separated from God can be reconciled to God by grace through faith in his son, Jesus, who died to take the punishment for our sin. The result of that reconciliation with God is not only that we have a clean slate of forgiveness, but we have the restoration of a relationship with God. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Having been put to 
to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ died to bring us to God. Jesus died to bring us back into a relationship of friendship and fellowship, communion and communication with God. The gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. It's not just a passport to a happy eternity. It restores what was lost in the garden. And what did Adam and Eve enjoy in the garden? It says God walked with them in the garden. They had a friendship with God, fellowship with God, communion and communication with God in the garden that was lost when they sinned. But the gospel restores it. And what is prayer but communication and communion with God? Prayer is pouring out our souls to God in adoration of him, praise to him, thanksgiving to him, confession, supplication, and intercession. Prayer also involves listening to God, doesn't it? Listening to him as he speaks to us in his word, he reveals his will, which then becomes the basis for our prayer as we breathe back to him as our prayer, what he has revealed as his will. Prayer is communion with God. We listen to God from his word. We talk to God in our prayers. Then we're attentive to how he answers our prayers. And we respond with praise and thanksgiving. And through it all, we become closer to God. We know more about him. We learn of him. We love him more. And our intimacy with God deepens. So it's right to say that prayer is the very goal of the gospel. The gospel intends not just to forgive our sins, but to restore us to a friendship and fellowship with God. When we had sinned, there was a separation between holy God and sinful man. Communication ceased. There was a deafening silence. The wires, as it were, were snipped. But as a result of what Jesus has done, those wires of communication and communion with God have been spliced back together again, and we have a restored relationship. That's why Jesus said these words in John 17, 3, praying to his Father. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? There, he's referring to eternal life, not in a quantitative sense as endless life, but in a qualitative sense. Eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. And to know someone bespeaks a relationship. And a relationship bespeaks communication. And communication bespeaks self-revelation and listening. Isn't that what relationships are all about? We reveal ourselves so we can be known. And we listen to others reveal themselves so we can know them. I remember, especially in the early days of our marriage, when my wife and I would go out to dinner with someone or we'd have people over, we would review and we'd say, now, did we listen enough? Or did we talk too much? Did we talk enough so that they could get to know us? But did we listen enough so we could get to know them? Because we want to build relationships and it's a two-way street, right? We listen to learn And we reveal so that people can learn us, knowing and being known. That's true of our human relationships. Some of us need to learn to talk more and reveal ourselves so people can know us. Others of us need to listen more 
so we can learn about others. But that's what our relationship with God is all about. It's a give and take, listening to God through his word and then talking to God in communication. The Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The goal of the Christian life is to know God, knowing and being known on the deep level of personhood. That's what reconciliation with God is all about. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that one day he says, I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But until that time, we're in this process of getting to know God better, revealing ourselves to him, even though he knows everything perfectly. We're communicating with God. We're having communion with God. And prayer is central to that. So why should you pray? Why should you devote a lot of time to prayer? Alone with God in the secret place, pouring out your heart to him, listening to him as he speaks through his word, reasoning with him, pleading with him, in some cases arguing with him in a way that honors him as per the book of Job. Why should you do that? Because that's why Jesus died. Christ died for sins that he might bring us to God, that he might restore to us communion, communication, fellowship, and friendship with God. So the first reason, if you love the gospel of God's reconciling grace, you need to love prayer because it's the very goal of the gospel. Secondly, why, should, why is prayer vitally important? Prayer as asking is God's ordained means for meeting our needs. And here I want to make a statement or quote a, a, a statement from the Bible that's kind of a general truism. It has a context, but it's a general truth. And that's the word of James 4.2, where James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, that has a particular context, but it's a general truth. You don't have because you don't ask. Now, James, as many of you know, was literally a half-brother to Jesus, and James, in his letter, drew a lot from Jesus' teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And here he's probably reflecting something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. And James comes along and says, You don't have because you don't ask. As my half-brother, really my Lord, said, Ask, and you will receive. So whether it's material provisions, give us this day our daily bread, or spiritual need, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, Lord, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done, whether it's a material, physical need, whether it's a spiritual need, God has arranged it so that we need to ask. Imagine a man who is a billionaire, and he's got a billion dollars, and he wants to give an inheritance to his children, but he wants to do it while he's still alive. Now, there are a couple of ways he can do it. He can give it to them in one lump sum. Children, I've got enough for you to be cared for the rest of your lives. Here's 200 million for you, and 200 million for you, and 200 for you. Now, take it, and don't bother me. And they've got the inheritance. They're set up for life but they're more likely to forget the giver and just enjoy the gift. But God has not arranged it that way. 
God is a billionaire plus. He has everything that we need. Paul said to the Philippians, God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And there's a, a verse in the psalm. I often share it with single people who are looking for a spouse. God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. If God withholds something from you, it's not the good thing. It's not the best thing for you. He has something better. He will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. All these promises. God's a billionaire. He's got everything we need. But his ordained means for us to receive it is not to dump it on us once for all, but to have us come again and again and again and to ask why. Because he doesn't merely want to give us those things. He wants a relationship with us as provider and as needy recipient. And so... Yes, God will meet our needs, but you don't have because you don't ask. The lesson is ask. Do you need a job? Ask. Do you need a better job? Ask God. Do you need grace to overcome a strong temptation? Ask. Do you need help in your marriage? Ask. Do you want salvation for your children? Ask. And ask and ask year after year after year. Do you want to see souls saved through your witness? Or even have the opportunity to witness? Ask. Do you need boldness in the workplace to live for Christ and to speak for Christ? Ask. Do you need wisdom to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Yes, you do. Well, ask God. Do you need deliverance from anxiety or fear or worry or depression? Ask. Now, there's a lot to learn about asking and how we ask, but I simply want to impress upon us that one of the reasons prayer is important is because it is God's appointed means for giving us what we need. You don't have because you don't ask. Here's a third reason why prayer is vitally important. Prayer, as the language of dependence, is the heart of the Christian life. Prayer, as the language of dependence, is the very heart of the Christian life. I don't know if it's still true, but at least years ago, people used to mock Christians. Have you ever heard this? Um, Christianity is for weak people. Christianity is a crutch for weak people. How many of you heard something similar to that? Ah, your religion is just a crutch for weak people. I heard a wonderful response years ago. Oh, no, 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 no. My Christianity is not a crutch. It's more than that. It's a life support system for helpless people. It's a ventilator. It's not just a crutch. In fact, the Christian life begins with resurrection for dead people. It's not merely a crutch. See, the essence of the Christian life is expressed so well by the Apostle Paul in a passage I will read, you need not turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 12, it's a passage you know well. The Apostle Paul 
made this statement because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself there was given me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself concerning this I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me and he has said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The watchword of the Christian life is God's power in our weakness. And that is so contrary to the spirit of our age, isn't it? It's so contrary to the American rugged individualism. We tend to have a can-do mentality, a can-do mindset. Some years ago, you might remember, there was Superstorm Sandy, which hit New Jersey. And I remember the response was, we're going to overcome this thing. We are Jersey strong. Jersey strong. That's typical of the unbeliever mindset, right? We're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to overcome this in our own strength. We're Jersey strong. We have a can-do mentality. Well, I submit to you that the mindset of the Christian should be a, a can-do-nothing mindset. In light of what Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So rather than the common can-do mindset, we ought to have a can-do-nothing mindset, except Paul says in Philippians 4, 13, you know it well, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And friends, that has always been the case. God allowed the people of Israel to be hemmed in between the sea of water and the sea of soldiers. They were a helpless, unarmed multitude with women and children. Why? So that they would see the salvation of the Lord. And we read in Exodus 14, 13, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. What is that? God's power through human weakness and helplessness. God had his people march around the city of Jericho seven times and then blow trumpets and shout, causing the thick walls of Jericho to fall down. Now, does anybody believe it was the power of the decibels of the trumpets and their voices that made those walls fall? No. No. Why did God do that? To show his power through human weakness. God intentionally whittled down Gideon's army from 33,000 men to 300 armed with trumpets and pitchers con containing torches to come against their Midianite enemies. And we read in Judges 7, 7, And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his own home. And why was that? To show that it was in God's power to defeat the enemy. Again, God's power in human weakness. God used a little boy, a young man, David, armed with a sling and, a, and smooth stones to come against the Philistine champion, who was nine feet tall, all armored up with sword, spear, and javelin. Why? Listen to the language of 1 Samuel 17. Why did God give the victory? Of course, he was a representative of the Lord Jesus, but why did God give a victory to such 
apparent weakness over such apparent strength. First Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. In the days of Jehoshaphat, a godly king, one of the few, he was threatened by three nations, and he makes one of the great prayers in the Old Testament. Ending with these words in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Friends, if you want a pattern for prayer, that's it. God, all we have to offer you is impotence and ignorance. We have no power. And no understanding of what we are to do, but our eyes are on you. We're praying, Lord. How did God respond to that prayer? Do not fear or be dismayed because this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. God loved that prayer. We're impotent and we're ignorant, but our eyes are on you. God says, I, I'll take care of it. He loved that prayer because it was the language of weakness and helplessness and dependency, and his power was made perfect in human weakness. And friend, that's the heart of the Christian life, isn't it? Through all the ages, God's power through human weakness. And what is prayer? It is not only communion with God purchased for us through the gospel. It's not only asking as the means for God to give, but prayer is also the language of dependency, utter helplessness and weakness. It says, God, I am powerless and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And you see why Bunyan would say that if you're not a praying person, you're not a Christian. Because the heart and soul, the essence of the Christian life, is God's power in human weakness. And that's how it began. If you understand salvation correctly, your salvation began with God unilaterally, monergistically, taking you a dead sinner and giving you life. You he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the Christian life continues in the language of Philippians 2, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see why you should be a man or woman given to praying, praying often, acknowledging God and his power in your weakness? It's the very heart of the Christian life to say, oh God, I am weak, but you are almighty. Oh God, I am resourceless, but you have all the resources of omnipotence at your disposal. God, I am ignorant, but you know all things. I am helpless, but you're the helper of the helpless. 
You wonder why God has a special regard for and makes special promises to care for certain classes of people, orphans, widows, the poor, the oppressed, and the stranger. Why? They are especially weak, especially vulnerable, especially helpless, and God delights to take care of them, and he promises some serious threats against those who do wrong to those vulnerable people because he is the helper of the helpless. Even as Jesus said, I haven't come to call the healthy, but the sick to repentance. Here's a fourth of five reasons why prayer is of vital importance. Prayer as praise gives God the glory that is due to him. Listen to some statements from the Psalms and other places. Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 18.3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 66.1 and 2, Shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Jeremiah 10.7 who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. It's what you deserve. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, we have this motif in the Psalms and throughout the Bible, this motif or this idea of what is due to the Lord, what he is worthy of. And the Father and the Son are worthy of glory and praise and reverence. They're worthy of ascriptions of glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, might, and blessing. And isn't that, again, what we do in prayer? Part of our prayer life ought to be praise. The prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, is filled with praises. The word praise occurs in 50 Psalms. The word glory occurs in 38 Psalms. You see, this is something we owe the Lord. It is his due. It is something he is worthy of. He is worthy to be praised. When Jesus entered Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, there were people who were disciples praising God for him, for the miracles he had done. And, and the Pharisees were ticked off at that. They were jealous of Jesus. And they said to Jesus that, uh, uh, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Remember how Jesus responded, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I will receive praise. I will receive honor and glory. Now, we don't want to be undone by rocks and stones, right? Jesus said, if men will not praise me, the stones will cry out because I'm worthy. And so that's another reason why we pray. Because in prayer, we give praise and honor and glory to the God and to his son who are due those praises. And then fifth and finally for this morning, prayer as confession keeps our consciences clean. When you come to Jesus for salvation, he forgives all of your sins. And sometimes we say he's forgiven your sins past, present, and future. Now, some people react to that. Whoa, you mean Jesus has forgiven me all my future sins? 
And some people say, well, if you say that, then that's going to give license to people to sin. They're going to say, wait, if all my sins are forgiven, I can just live any way I want because I've got a clean slate. Anyone who thinks that or says that does not understand justification and sanctification. In justification, we receive a clean title to heaven. And the righteousness of Jesus is given to us, credited to us, imputed to us, so that we have no sin we're responsible for. But in definitive sanctification, which happens at the same time we're justified, God produces a radical change within us so that we can't go on habitually sinning. Romans 6, shall we continue in sin? Since God loves to show grace when we sin, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? May it never be. When you understand salvation, you understand, no, not only has he forgiven me, but he has so changed me that I have a different disposition of heart, and I cannot go on living habitually in the sin that I once did. And so it's really safe to tell people, no, all your future sins are forgiven because if you're a true Christian, you're not going to use that as a basis of license to sin. But... If all our sins have been forgiven, even the future sins, then why do we need to confess our sins? Well, first of all, do we need to ongoingly, even on a daily basis, confess our sins if all of them are forgiven? Well, yeah, we are to confess our sins whenever we commit them, and we still commit sin, because 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But in the middle, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do need to daily, ongoingly confess our sins. Well, why? If they're already all forgiven. I think here's the answer. We not only relate to God as our judge, but as our father. As our judge, God's justice is completely satisfied. Jesus paid for all of our sins. They're forgiven. We don't need to satisfy God as judge, but we have a relationship with God as our father. And when we sin, there's a break in that fellowship. The Bible talks about our sin grieving the Holy Spirit, who is God. And so we need to confess our sins regularly in order to maintain a good conscience toward God and to maintain our fellowship with God. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Acts 24, 16, in view of this, that is the, the fact that there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, in view of that off, uh, awesome eschatological reality, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Friends, brothers and sisters, a blameless conscience, what the Bible calls a good conscience or a clean conscience, is a powerful weapon in the hands of God. You know what it's like to have a guilty conscience, right? When you have a guilty conscience, you open yourself up to the devil's accusations, and you're not going to be a very good brother or sister to your fellows. You're not likely to bring an encouragement or an exhortation to your fellow Christian because you're going to be overcome with a sense of your own sin, and who am I to say anything? I've got my own sin. You're not likely to be a very bold witness to others because the devil will be accusing you because of your bad conscience, and you're going to be temporarily sidelined with that bad conscience. But when you have a good conscience, 
It makes you bold to lovingly come alongside your brothers and sisters and give them encouragement or even exhortation. And it makes you bold to witness to others because you're operating with a clean conscience. And that's one of the things that prayer does. Prayer as confession helps us to maintain a good, clear conscience before God and makes us a more powerful weapon in the hands of God for the edification of our brethren and for our witness to the lost. So, in conclusion, here's another reason that prayer is important. We confess our sins and maintain a blameless conscience. So I've given you five reasons why prayer is vitally important for you as an individual, for us as a church. Prayer as communion with God, it's the very goal of the gospel. Peter said, Christ died for sins that he might bring us to God. Prayer as asking is the ordained means of God for meeting our needs. You don't have because you don't ask. Prayer as the language of dependency is at the very heart of the gospel. When I am weak, then I am strong. Prayer as praise gives God the glory that he deserves. Psalm 18.3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And prayer as confession helps us keep a clean conscience before God. Well, next week, God willing, I'm going to have five more reasons why prayer is important. But um, in light of what we've seen this morning, let us give ourselves more fully to prayer. Pray, pray. Pray. Pray the first thing you do, perhaps after reading the word when you get up in the morning. Pray often throughout the day, maybe at the end of the day. Take some time to pray. And as a church, let's be praying often. Let's pray in our small home groups. Let's pray at our men's meetings and women's meetings. Let's pray in our corporate prayer meetings, which we only have twice a month. Let's be faithful to come and pray for all these reasons and more we will consider next week. But if you are here, and I always make this appeal because I never assume that everybody's a Christian, no preacher, no pastor ought ever to assume that everyone listening to him is a believer. I don't know your hearts. And if there is someone here who, who has not put his or her faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you where you stand based on the word of God in light of what we have considered. If you are outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you have not been brought to God. Jesus died to bring us to God, but if you haven't come to Jesus, you have not been brought to God. You're not a friend of God. You're not in fellowship with God. You are the enemy of God and under the wrath of God. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you don't have the promise that if you ask, he will give you what you ask. Because as James goes on to say, you ask, but you ask wrongly to consume it on your lust. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you're going to ask selfishly. And you're not going to have the answers to what you're asking. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not feeling your helplessness and dependency. You are dependent on your own strength and your own resources, which, as I hope you know, are very feeble and inadequate. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you are not bringing glory and praise to God in your prayers or even in your life. 
because apart from Jesus, we are living for ourselves. And you are robbing God, the God who made you for himself. You're robbing him of glory. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, there's no way you can have a good conscience. Your conscience is afflicted with guilt because of sin. But dear friends, all of that can change in a moment if you will but say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner separated from God because of my own willful rebellion. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to be reconciled to you. I want to know you. I want to be forgiven. Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, the sinner. And from the throne of mercy and grace, God will respond. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will send his spirit to live in you and change you. And you'll be changed forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would cause these reasons for prayer to stick with our, our minds and to be remembered by us, that it might be a, an impetus to us to pray more and to take advantage of the wonderful throne of grace that is before the believers in your Son. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.